0: A reading from God's Word, the book of Genesis, chapter 3, the first seven verses. Now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, Did God actually say, You shall not eat of any tree in the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, We may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden. But God said, And she also gave some to her husband, who was with her, and he ate. Then the eyes of both were opened, and they knew that they were naked. And they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. This is the word of the Lord.
1: Thanks be to God. This book is Cornelius planting us not the way it's supposed to be. It's an outstanding book on the doctrine of sin, and in the opening chapter, chapter one, he starts off talking about the movie The Grand Canyon. Kevin Klein and Danny Glover, uh, this is from the 90s somewhere, he says that in the film Grand Canyon, an immigration attorney, that's Kevin klein breaks out of a traffic jam and attempts to bypass it. His route takes him along streets that seem progressively darker and more deserted. Then the predictable nightmare. His expensive car stalls on one of the, those alarming streets whose teenage guardians favor expensive guns and sneakers. The attorney does manage to phone for a tow truck, but before it arrives, five young street toughs surround him, surround his disabled car and threaten him with considerable bodily harm. Then just in time, the tow truck driver, who is Danny Glover, shows up and, and his driver, an earnest genial man, begins to hook up to the, dis, to the disabled car. The Tufts protest. The truck driver is interrupting their their meal. So the driver takes the leader of the group aside and attempts a five-sentence introduction to metaphysics. Man, he says, the world ain't supposed to work like this. Maybe you don't know that, but this ain't the way it's supposed to be. I'm supposed to be able to do my job without asking you if I can. And that dude is supposed to be able to wait with his car without you ripping him off. Everything's supposed to be different than what it is here. The world ain't supposed to work like this. But it does, doesn't it? Our bodies ain't supposed to work like this. We experience genetic problems and viruses of, it seems like, infinite varieties. Our mind ain't, ain't supposed to work like this. We have evil thoughts. We have that feeling of uncontrollable thoughts. We can't stop. Our relationships ain't supposed to work like this. Marriages, siblings, parents and children, friends. We bite and devour one another where we should love and serve. Our governments ain't supposed to work like this. Governments make running a Christian organization sometimes very difficult and make abortions very easy. Everywhere we turn, we're we're struck with this, that feeling, the world ain't supposed to work like this. And that feeling is one of those cases, unlike other times in our world where we have certain feelings, where our feelings are exactly correct, 100% correct. The world ain't supposed to work like this. And this morning, we're going to dive into when everything went so horribly wrong and it started to work like this. So our series is called Right From the Start. At the start, things were right. And as we've said half a dozen times already, then things went horribly wrong. And so the name of this sermon is When Everything Went Horribly Wrong. This is that moment when everything went horribly wrong. And then the rest of Genesis will, be, will become an almost daily, uh, daily reminder of how things went horribly wrong. More and more illustrations of, of ways in which the world went horribly wrong. Point one is going to be on the covenant of works. We're going to do a little bit of a, a context setting back in chapter 2 before we turn to chapter 3 and then we're going to look at the fall the verses that were read to us and then the longest point is going to be the results of the fall so the covenant of works and then the fall itself and then the results of the fall that's how we're going to approach our text this morning let's pray Father we all sit here with our own personal ways that we've experienced that this world ain't supposed to work like this we've been the victims at times of that fact, and we've been the, the antagonists in that reality. And we thank you, Lord, that we, while we are talking about the fall, we also get to celebrate the birth of Christ and the great solution to the problem. So Father, we pray that as we go through these weeks, these Christmas weeks of reflection and reminding ourselves of the glories of Christmas and what it means to us, we pray that at the same time, you would humble us, convict us those places where we are contributing to the world not working the way it's supposed to be. Convict us, Lord. Change us. Renew us. Let our thoughts and our loves and our actions be consistent with how it's supposed to be. Use us, Lord, we pray. Be glorified. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, so before we turn to chapter 3, we want to look at two verses in chapter two, and this is called the covenant of works, because in some ways you can't understand why is this such a big deal, what happens in chapter three? Why is that such a big deal, unless we really look closely at two verses in chapter two? And we've read them, and we've hinted at them, we've mentioned them, but we want to give, give a few minutes uh, to them. And these are uh, chapter two, verse 16 and 17, chapter two, verse 16 and 17, and this is, these are the first words that God speaks to humanity. He speaks them to Adam. He's just made Adam, places him in the garden, and then God speaks. And these are uh, certainly familiar if you've read your your Bibles at all. The Lord God commanded the man, the man, not the woman, the woman hasn't been created yet, but he commands the man, Adam. And he says, "You, you may surely eat of every tree of the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, you shall not eat. For in the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. In the Hebrew, it's not just that you will die, a statement of fact or a statement of certainty, but it's you shall surely. It's, a, it's beyond a certainty that it will happen. You shall surely die. And that is what theologians have called the covenant of works. And a covenant is a time when God will define how people, how his people should relate to him. Now, at this point, it's only Adam, but in Adam is all of us. So God is really establishing how all people should relate to him. The parties in the covenant, the immediate parties are God and Adam, those two parties. And God here is speaking as the lawgiver, God, the creator. He's speaking here as judge. But those are the parties of the covenant, God and then Adam, but in Adam, all of us. And God defines here what will lead to curse, punishment, and the answer is disobedience. Disobedience will lead to disaster. You shall surely die. Those are the words. So disobedience is what will lead you to death. And then the assumption is that obedience will lead to blessing in life. Now God, or Adam, eats from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, which we've already heard from. He doesn't eat from the tree of life. So in that tree of life is, is a gospel promise that there is life for those who obey, and yet Adam and Eve choose the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. They choose the path of disobedience. But there is, there is obedience, or there is the blessing there in obedience. So this is a divine covenant. There's, there's, there's about eight times when God, uh, in, in, a, in a moment, at a moment in time, establishes a divine covenant, a new, a new way of relating to him. And we're not going to look at all these at all this morning. But here's a definition of a divine covenant so a divine covenant is when god defines a specific new relationship with his people so he had just made adam and now he's defining how is this relationship supposed to work and the answer is you must obey me there will be blessing if you obey there will be disaster if you disobey so he's he defines a specific new relationship with his people and in these covenants these half a dozen covenants. And in these covenants, there are conditions, promises and warnings, and then there are blessings and curses. Now, the covenant is not called a covenant in this verse, but later on in the Old Testament it is. So in Hosea 6, verse 7, the prophet writes, But like Adam, so he's he's rebuking the northern kingdom Israel, and he says, But like Adam, they transgressed the covenant, not the covenant with Israel but the covenant of works, this initial covenant in the garden. But like Adam, they transgressed the covenant. There they dealt faithlessly with me. As I said in the Reformed tradition, this is called the covenant of works. And In our own Confession of Faith 8.2, we say this. The first covenant made with man was a covenant of works, wherein life was promised to Adam and in him to his posterity upon the condition of perfect and personal obedience. Perfect and personal obedience, that's the condition. Now that's, that's language we just stole from the Westminster Confession of Faith. We didn't come up with that. We stole that, we, we kept that in, in our confession from the Westminster Confession of Faith. That's what a covenant of works is. And the truth is, covenants are the backbone of biblical history. There's no moment of human history where there's not some covenant dictating how people are, are to relate to God. In fact, when you, when you, if you have a hard copy of a Bible, if you open to the table of contents, it says the Old Testament and the New Testament. And there's 39 books in the Old Testament and 27 in the New Testament. Old Testament just means old covenant. Testament, covenant's the same word. New, 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 the New Testament is the new covenant. So the Old Covenant, which is actually the covenant connected to Moses, that's that's what dominates the Old Testament books, whereas the New Testament is dominated by the New Covenant. So our whole Bible is framed in this covenantal language. So over the next weeks, half a dozen weeks or so, we're going to dip into, at different times, this covenant, covenant the covenant of works, the covenant with Adam. And then next week, we're going to look at the covenant of grace, which is actually in our chapter this morning, but we're just, gonna hide, we're just gonna skim over it this morning, the covenant of grace. And then the covenant with Noah, which is another way to say the covenant of preservation. And then the covenant with Abraham in chapter 12 and 15 and 17 and 22, the covenant with Abraham, the covenant of election. <clears throat> Now, as I said, every time the Lord makes one of these covenants, it's not just with that person, although there is always a central uh, party mediator of that covenant at the moment, but every time a covenant is made with, with uh, a, an individual in these occasions, all of God's people are also kind of in that person himself. And we'll see that with Adam. Even though Adam is the individual that God makes a covenant with, we are there with him. And then his behavior is our behavior, and his choice is our choice, and so now let's see. Now let's look at the fall itself. So with that setup, that's the condition, and that's the promise. And now let's see what happens. Chapter three, verse seven, one through seven. Now, verse one: the serpent is introduced. A new figure is is enters the scene. And the serpent is a created being. He's he's more crafty than any other beast of the field which the Lord had created. He's a created being. He doesn't he doesn't He's not an eternal being like God is. He is created like God. He's a fallen angel. And we we learn later what the name of this serpent is. Right now, it's just the serpent. Later, we learn that the serpent is Satan, the devil. It's it's referenced several times in, in our Bibles, but here's a clear text from Revelation chapter 12. So, and the great dragon was thrown down, that ancient serpent who was called the devil and Satan, the deceiver of the whole world, he was thrown down to the earth and his angels were thrown down with him. Let's see, uh, we're anticipating the fullness of that event and in some ways it's happened, but in some ways we are, we are anticipating the final uh, destruction of the serpent as we'll see. So somehow Satan is in this serpent and serpent is just a snake. So this slithering snake in the garden, somehow Satan is using, possessing this snake to speak to the woman. And so your, your natural revulsion of snakes has a long history to it. So the craftiness of the devil, of the serpent, is, is reflected in many ways. One of them is using the snake to talk to the woman. That's, that's crafty. But it's also in, in what he says, how he says it he asks simple questions that are not so simple uh, when, you, when you spend a moment just thinking about them. So in, in the first verse, the serpent speaks, Satan speaks, and he, he just asks somewhat matter-of-factly, as if it's just a factual question, did God actually say, you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? Did God actually say, you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? But this isn't the devil trying to clarify his memory. You know, I seem to remember some conversation that, that God had with Adam. And, Did it go like this? As if he's some kind of indifferent scholar. This is this, the devil actually questioning God's goodness. Did God actually say, you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? As if God is a scrooge, as, he, as, as if he's withholding from the man, the woman. Because God said the exact opposite And the Lord God, in in, in verse 16, chapter 2, the Lord God commanded the man saying, you may surely eat of every tree of the garden. One accepted, right? Verse 17, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. But before that, he says, you may surely eat of every tree of the garden. God goes out of his way to magnify the abundance and generosity of his goodness to them. He's no Scrooge. Yes, there is a, is a, 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 a limit. You may not eat from this one tree. That is true but you may surely eat of every other, every other tree of the garden. There's only one they cannot eat from. And the woman responds. She kind of, maybe she kind of knows that that's that's not exactly right. But in her response, we're we're kind of encouraged and then kind of not encouraged. So the woman responds and Eve responds. She says, we may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden, that is true. But God said, you shall, you shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden, also true. Neither shall you touch it, lest you die. Well, God actually did not say that. He did not say to not eat and not touch it. He did say not eat of it. He made no, God made no provision about touching the tree. Now, you might argue it's kind of wise. If you're not supposed to even eat from this tree, then maybe you shouldn't touch it. Okay, fine. But don't say that's what the Lord God said. When you do that, you're adding to God's law. And adding to God's law is never an addition. It's always a subtraction. Adding to God's law is never an addition. It's always a subtraction. When you add your own law to God's law, you take away from God's law. You don't add to it. You don't create more esteem for God's law. You create less esteem for God's law. You don't create more reverence for God's law when you add to it, your own laws. You create less reverence for it. You know, it's like if you went to uh, the North Carolina Museum of Art and, and brought your own paints and a paintbrush, and you just walked around to all these masterpieces, perfect, in, in their own way, perfect, right? and you just think, ah, it needs a little more yellow <laughs> <laughs> or red or gray or whatever. All of your additions at that point are subtractions. They're not additions. And that's what happens with God's law when we add to it. Well, after the, the woman's comment, maybe, maybe the serpent at this point sees an opening. Maybe he's encouraged. Well, if that's how she's going to treat God's law, I think I, can, I think I can do business here. But the serpent said to the woman... And now just outright denial, rejection. But the woman said to the, uh, sorry, but the servant said to the woman, You shall, you will not surely die, for God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. Just outright law, lie, outright lie. Why does Jesus call the devil the father of lies? Because of this moment, this lie that is behind all lies that are ever told by a human or a demon, or the devil. This is the lie behind all those lies. An outright lie. So now what's happening here is the devil is basically calling God a liar and not good. Because there's this wonderful gift of being wise and knowing good and evil that he's withholding from you. All you have to do is eat from the tree and you will get it. Well, at this point, the woman is convinced. Eve is convinced. But Moses is very careful here to, see, to help us to see the nature of sin. Sin is a complicated thing. Sin is a, is, a whole, is a whole being act. Your mind, your heart, and your body are all involved when you sin. It's not just your body. It's not just your mind. It's not just your heart. Your whole being is involved. And so in verse 6, you get this sobering look at, at how sin occurs. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food and that it was a delight to the eyes and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate. And she also gave some to her husband who was with her and he ate. So you see her mind has, has changed, has, she's changed her mind on the fruit. Before I thought I should not eat it because it would lead to my death. Now she thinks, no, I I should eat it because it will lead to wisdom. Her mind is engaged and her heart is engaged because she knows that there's something pleasurable about this, this fruit. If I eat this, it will taste good and it will lead to good things in my life. And then she eats. Then she takes of the fruit and eats. Only then. So without her heart and mind being fully convinced and engaged, she would not take of the fruit and eat. So the action, if there's a set of dominoes up here, the action is the last domino. It's significant, it's very important, but it's the last domino. There's a bunch of dominoes before that, where your mind is being changed, your heart is being engaged. You suddenly think, I want this, I want this, and my life will be okay. The consequences won't be that bad if I, if I take it, and then you commit the act. That's why there's such an emphasis in the Bible on our minds, what we think about, what we meditate on, what we put in it. And such an emphasis on our hearts. Out of the overflow of the heart, Jesus said, out of the overflow of the heart, the mouth speaks. If you have an angry speech problem, you don't have an angry speech problem. You have an angry heart problem. And if you don't fix your angry heart, your angry speech will continue. Paul says in Philippians 4.8, Finally, brothers, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is commendable, if there is any excellence, if there is anything worthy of praise, think. Think about these things. Think about these things. Now, he doesn't want our obedience or our holiness to stop with thinking, but he knows that when we think on those things, it affects our hearts. And that affects our actions. But well, we see here that she wasn't alone. The husband was with her and he ate. We don't get, we don't get the same kind of unpacking of his heart and his mind and, and what's going on in there. He's simply with her, almost a, this picture of a passive husband. And that, that is what he is at this moment. So he's, he's failing in his calling as a husband. He was called to work and protect what was entrusted to him, and in this case Eve, and he did not protect her and failed miserably as a husband. And then he adds to that with sitting against God. He breaks God's commandment. He was the one person entrusted with that command on the earth, and he broke that commandment. And then we get get the first sign that this is not good. We already knew it was not good. God God promised that on the day that you you eat of it, you shall surely die. But in in verse seven, we see that this isn't good. So then the eyes of both were opened and they knew that they were naked and they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. So their first sign of shame, their first first sign of wanting to hide. Before this, no human wanted to hide except for fun. But now there's a sense that I'm guilty and I want to hide and I don't want others to see me. I looked up this morning what a fig leaf was like because I didn't have a, a mental image of fig leaves. And so it turns out that a fig leaf is about the size of a sheet of paper. So, you know, some, some, a foot long or so and six or eight inches wide. And so somehow they managed to sew those together and cover themselves up. Not a particularly desirable wardrobe if you're going to spend all day in it, right? But that's what, that's, that's kind of the, that's what the human efforts Achieved. We'll see later that God had a better design for that. Now, in application for this, it's helpful to see how sin works as we battle the sins in our lives. To battle sin, you have to address it at these levels, you know, the mind, the heart, and the action. A lot of times in our battles against sin, we think only of the action. I need to stop doing that, whatever that thing is. And we don't back up and think about all the, all the thoughts and all the loves in our heart that went before the actual action. But it's really helpful sometimes, especially for certain besetting sins that just really have a hold on you. It's very helpful to, just to back up. Where did, this, where did this line of dominoes start? It didn't start with you actually eating the piece of chocolate cake. It started way before that. What were all the things that led up to that piece of chocolate cake? Whatever you know, the, the thing was you're not supposed to do. I'm not saying eating chocolate cake is sinful. That's such a wonderful gift of God. But there are times where it is, it is wrong and sinful. We know that. So battling sin, look at your thoughts, look at your loves, what are the things you're loving, and, and, and look at the practical behavioral side of, of the sin as you, as you battle your sins. Well, now let's look at the results, and this will be the longest point. The results of the sin. I'll start with reading verses 8 through 13 where the judge comes to town. And they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord among the trees of the garden. But the Lord God called to the man and said to him, where are you? God knows where he is. This is not an informational question. This is the beginning of the interrogation. Where are you? And he said, I heard the sound of you in the garden and I was afraid because I was naked and I hid myself. Adam said, who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten of the tree of which I commanded you not to eat? The man said, The woman whom you gave to be with me, she gave me fruit of the tree, and I ate. Then the Lord God said to the woman, What is this that you have done? The woman said, The serpent deceived me, and I ate. And then he'll speak to the serpent. We'll get to that in a minute. So this is, God has already revealed himself as the lawgiver, and now he's showing up as the judge. In verse eight, as it's translated in the ESV, you, you get the sense that what's what's being described here is that is an afternoon stroll with Adam and Eve. He came he came often in the afternoon, and he was he was often with them in a in a very pleasant kind of way. And you know, late afternoon is a great time for for God to be walking in the garden, so He did that as He often does. But actually, another way to translate this is that the sound of you that. That's that's a fiery, thundering sound, maybe more like Mount Sinai, when God appears on the mountain in thunder and lightning and the people cower in fear. It's possible that that's actually how this should be translated. This is uh, Jeffrey Nyhausen and how he translated it. Then the man and his wife heard the thunder of Yahweh God as he was going back and forth in the garden in the wind of the storm, and they hid from Yahweh God among the trees of the garden. It's got a different feel to it, doesn't it? Either way, God is coming as judge to, this, to the, the couple. He speaks to the man, where are you? And then he's going to ask Adam two questions. Adam doesn't answer either one. God asks two questions, and his first words are, the woman whom you gave to be with me. He's the first blame shifter in history. No one had to teach him how to do it. With the fall, his, his heart was changed. He now had a sinful tendency in his heart. That original righteousness, which was his uh, at creation, is now original sin. There's a, there's a, a sin disposition, a sin tendency in him. God asks him two questions. He says, the woman whom you gave to be with me. And of course, he's not just blaming the woman. He's really blaming God. God, you know, the woman whom you gave to be with me. If you hadn't given me this woman, we wouldn't be in this predicament. That's, That's really what he's saying there. And so the interrogator continues, turns to the woman. And she mimics her husband. So she doesn't blame the man. She blames the serpent. The serpent deceived me and I ate. And there's, a, there's, a, there's a truth, a small amount of truth in what they're both saying, but there's a huge amount of, of ignoring the responsibility that they, that they have, that they possess. Now, the Lord doesn't continue that, this, this conversation with the serpent in the same way. He doesn't ask a question at all. He goes immediately to cursing the serpent. So verses 14 and 15, this is the Lord cursing the serpent. The Lord God said to the serpent, Satan, Because you have done this, cursed are you above all livestock and above all beasts of the field. On your belly you shall go, and dust you shall eat all the days of your life. And I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. Now, if we think of serpents, there's a a practical fulfillment of that, isn't there? They slither on the ground in the dust, They bruise our heels at times and at times we step on their heads. But then there's this whole other layer of what is being said and what is being being done here. If we think of that, that is, is also speaking of Satan himself. Now enmity sounds like a bad thing, but enmity in this case, this is God's grace. The fact that there's enmity between the woman and the serpent is a good thing for us. Now, in the fall, what happened was that the serpent and the woman and the man conspired together against God. There, wasn't, there was an alliance there. There wasn't enmity. There was an alliance. And that alliance led to horrible things. But the fact that there's enmity is a promise that the devil and humanity will not always be working together. There will be a division, which is a protection for us who are people, right? A protection from the devil's influence, ultimately. Now, there is... There is a, 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 a kind of interweaving of alliance and enmity when it comes to people and, and the demonic realm. But ultimately, because of the seed of the woman, there is a final, there is a final destruction of the seed of the of the serpent. So God says to the serpent that your, that your offspring, the offspring of Satan, Satan's offspring, and the offspring of the woman are, are going to do some battle in the future. So he, speaking of the offspring of the woman, he shall bruise your head. It's an individual. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. Now, Paul in the book of Romans refers back to this verse and he, he, addresses, he addresses it to us as Christians. He says, the God of peace will soon crush Satan under your feet. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you. The God of peace will soon crush Satan under your feet. So he's, he's saying that, three, that uh, chapter 315 promise back in, in Genesis, that's going to be fulfilled through you. And yet we know that the only reason it's fulfilled in us is because of Christ. Christ is the offspring of the woman who will ultimately triumph over Satan. And we are in Christ, we're the body of Christ. And so that's how that's fulfilled. And then God turns to the woman. In some ways, he's going in order of significance of cursing, um, order of uh, magnitude of the results. So now he turns to the woman. And the, the, the woman and the man are going to be cursed according to how they were made and designed by the Lord. So the woman who's spoken to first, she was, she's made to be a helper for the man. She's made from the man, from his rib, remember. She's made from the man and for the man. And then we'll see that she is to be the mother of all living. So the husband and children are her two primary domains in Genesis 1 through 3. And those are the, those are the two places where she's cursed. So to the, to the woman, he says, I will surely multiply your pain in childbearing. In pain, you shall bring forth children. And then, kind of a complicated concept, but your desire shall be contrary to your husband. Your desire shall be contrary to your husband, and he shall rule over you. In other words, where there should have been harmony and unity between the husband and wife, singleness of purpose as the, as the, as the wife embraces the, the calling of the husband, there's division. Her desire now is to, to take the top spot. I want to be in charge. So her desire is, is to be in charge, and yet he shall rule over you. In other words, it's his spot. He's the head of the marriage. She's gonna desire that sinfully and that's gonna create all kinds of conflict in in marriages. Not just Adam and Eve's marriage, as you might have guessed, but perhaps in your marriage too. So she's cursed at the very place where there should have been only blessing. Cursed as a a mother, cursed as a wife. And then the man's turn. He gets the longest curse because he is the most responsible for what happens here. And to Adam he said, this is verse 17 through 19. And to Adam he said, because you have listened to the voice of your wife, and the problem is not listening to your wife. We know that, right? (laughs) That's a good thing to do. The problem is when your wife is asking you to eat what is forbidden, don't listen. Because you have listened to the voice of your wife and have eaten of the tree of which I commanded you, you shall not eat of it. Cursed is the ground because of you. He's cursed according to how he was made. He was made to work and keep, protect the ground. His name, Adam, means ground. He's made from the dust. So that's, that's going to be the pain point for him. In pain you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you, and you shall eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your face you shall eat bread till you return to the ground, for out of it you were taken, for you are dust, and to dust you shall return. This is Adam. The great crowning point of of creation, I don't mean Adam and Eve, but he made in the image of God, male and female, he made them in the image of God, destined to be glorified. And what he's saying is you're gonna be dust. Worm food. You were destined to be king of the earth, and instead you're going to be worm food. Now, glorification is going to happen, but we have to read the rest of our Bibles to see that. But at this point, Adam's destiny is that he's going to return to the dust, the dust from which he came. And the pain is not just because the work is going to be challenging. It's going to be that the ground is actually going to oppose you in this work. So just like the, for the woman, the husband is going to oppose you in a sense. Your, uh, the delivery of your child is going to oppose you in a sense. Well, now the ground is actually going to oppose you. There is meant to be this harmony as you work the ground and the ground provided for you. This beautiful, yes, it would take work and maybe even sweat, but the ground itself wouldn't be opposing you. But now... If you turn away for 30 seconds, there's going to be thorns and thistles overtaking your crops. There's going to be constant work required. This battle that happens, the weather is going to oppose you. All kinds of things will make this, what should have been blessed, sweet labor, difficult. And then the consequences continue. Verse 20 to 24 the man called his wife's name Eve. Because she was the mother of all living. And the Lord God made for Adam and his wife garments of skins, a better clothing, a more fitting clothing. But remember, the only way you get garments of skin is if you slaughter an animal. There was no death. There was no bloodshed before that moment. So an animal is slaughtered to cover them. Then the Lord God said, Behold, the man has become like one of us in knowing good and evil. Now, lest he reach out his hand and take also of the tree of life and eat and live forever. Therefore the Lord God sent him out from the garden of Eden to work the ground from which he was taken. He drove out the man and at the east of the garden of Eden, he placed the cherubim and a flaming sword that turned every way to guard the tree, to the uh, guard the way to the tree of life. They have to go back there to see why would God do this? Well, remember, at this point, Adam is a fallen human being. He has sinful tendencies. His body is, is decaying. And so for him to then take and eat of the tree of life and live forever, that would be horrible. Living forever as a, as a sinner is hell. That's not heaven. Nobody wants that. And so it was an act of grace and mercy, even as it was an act of punishment and judgment for the Lord to send him out of the garden. And those cherubim are there, the the cherubim the the pop up here and there, these uh, ferocious angelic warriors with their flaming swords. You don't mess with them. You You don't want to be anywhere near them when they are protecting something that's holy and sacred, like the Garden of Eden. Just to solidify that the way is closed. You cannot go back there. At least not yet. Not in that way. Now, remember above we we talked about Adam and Eve uh, in the covenant of works. So what happens with Adam happens to all humanity. And so this sin and the consequences are vivid, catastrophic, and in some ways we have to fill in a lot of the, a lot of the holes here. But as as the Bible marches on, we get to places like the book of Romans, we begin to see the, the massive impact that, that happened because of the sin of Adam. I'll read just a few verses from chapter five of the book of Romans. Paul writes that, therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man, that one man was Adam, death through sin, and so death spread to all men because all sinned. We all sinned in Adam. That's what, that's what Paul is saying there. We all sinned when Adam sinned, because we were all in him. For sin indeed was in the world before the law was given, but sin is not counted where there is no law. Yet death reigned from Adam to Moses, even over those whose sinning was not like the transgression of Adam, who was a type of the one who was to come. So Adam's sin brought disastrous consequences on all those who were in Adam. But what Paul is telling us there is that framework is also the framework for salvation. That's the framework for judgment in the covenant of works, but it's also the framework for salvation. He was a type of the one who was to come, who was Christ. And in Christ, the covenant of works is fulfilled. He obeys the covenant of works. And so he is, he is given eternal life. And all those who are in Christ, who are in him, are given eternal life. And so what the Bible presents for us is that we're either in Adam, destined for hell because of our failed works, or we're in Christ, destined for eternal life because of his obedience and righteousness. You're in one or the other. It's totally binary. You're one or the other. And you're in Christ through faith. Through faith, you are united to Christ. And as those who are united to Christ, you share his righteousness and receive his rewards. King David, when he's reflecting uh, on his own sin, so he's he's committed adultery with Bathsheba, he's he's murdered her husband to cover it up. He gets confronted, he repents, and as he's reflecting on his own sin, he says, behold, I was brought forth in iniquity and in sin did my mother conceive me. Now, he's not talking about being an illegitimate child. He was not an illegitimate child. What he's saying is that even from conception, there was this iniquity in me, this sinful disposition that was in me. That's the effect of Adam's sin. That original righteousness is now this original sin in us. And as we grow, we become babies who sin. I mean, yes, our sins as babies, that's... It's different than our sins as adults. But nobody has to teach, no new parent has to teach their baby how to sin. It's just in there from birth. It's just in there, and even really from before birth. So as we grow, that sinful tendency in each of us becomes actual sin. We fight and kill and destroy and lust and envy and steal and worship ourselves. Instead of God, we tear down things we are supposed to build. We build things we are supposed to destroy. We replay in our own lives exactly what we find in the Garden of Eden, twisting God's word, doubting God's character, and then breaking God's law because we think it will be pleasurable and lead us to a better life. But instead, sin leads us to pain, it destroys relationships, and it takes us farther from God and never closer. Sin is the most obvious part of Christianity to prove to a skeptical world. Proving the Trinity, that's difficult. Proving the existence of God, sometimes people reject that. But when it comes to the reality of sin and people doing sinful things to each other, it's easy to convince others. They're gonna doubt the fact that they themselves are part of the problem, and one of those sinners. But everyone has some category for sin and the fact that this world ain't working like it's supposed to work. Well, as we close here in conclusion, the world ain't supposed to work like this. That is so very true. But the solution to that sad reality that we find in the Garden of Eden is the promise spoken of right there in the Garden, the offspring of the woman, the offspring of the woman who will be the serpent crusher. That's our hope, this offspring of the woman that we celebrate every Christmas. So when Joseph is told that Mary's pregnant, we've, we've heard some of this already, when Joseph is told that Mary's pregnant, he intends to divorce her. At that time, uh, he, was not engaged, he was not married yet, but even as an engaged couple, they would need to divorce at that time. But then we read this. But as he considered these things, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, Do not fear to take Mary as your wife, for that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. Remember, Jesus is the Greek for what for what his mother would have called him, which is Joshua. Yahweh saves. Yahweh saves. You shall call his name Jesus or Joshua for he will save his people from their sins. All this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. How will that happen? Will this offspring of the woman, the serpent crusher, he will let the serpent bruise his heel. He will submit to a death on the cross. He will submit to crucifixion, a shameful criminal's death. But it's only having his heel bruised because he would rise from the dead three days later. And so right there at Christmas, you see Good Friday, Resurrection Sunday, it's all right there. So to save us, the infant in the manger must become our substitute killed on a cross. Hallelujah. Hallelujah. Hallelujah, the serpent crusher is ours. And if you believe in him, then you go from being in Adam, destined for dust and punishment, to being in Christ, destined for glorification and reward. Turn to Christ. Let's pray. Father, we pray that just as Adam and Eve's eyes were opened in a a wrong way, we pray that you would open our eyes in a right way. We pray that we would see ourselves and see the cross and see the birth of Christ and see the reality of the covenant of works more clearly than we have ever before. Help us to see this framework of the gospel that's right there in the Garden of Eden. There is a a wretched tragedy there, but there is also the glory of, of life in Christ's promise there. And so as we go through these weeks, these Christmas weeks, we pray, Lord, for joy as we bask in the glory of a Savior provided in our place in him. We pray for opportunities, give us courage to seize opportunities as conversations happen uh, with relatives and friends and coworkers about the season. We pray that you would help us to be faithful to speak the gospel as we have opportunity, faithful to testify just as witnesses, Lord, uh, speaking of what we have seen and heard and what you have done in our lives. You must change hearts, but help us to be faithful witnesses as we speak. Be glorified, Lord, be glorified. Let us understand more and more and more how your word speaks these truths, how it all works. Let us understand and love the gospel. We pray in Jesus' name, amen.